Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to some of the leading minds in wealth management. I'm David Clark, your host, and in today's episode, I'm speaking with Phil King, the Chief Investment Officer and founder of Regal Funds Management. Phil has been described by the Australian Financial Review as one of Australia's most astute hedge fund managers. He manages a portfolio of multiple strategies within the Regal Funds Management business and a collective funds under management of around $2 billion. One of the funds that uh, we have in the past and I have recommended and used for clients and continue is the Regal Small Companies Fund which focuses on smaller Australian companies in Australia uh, and the Asia Asia region. That fund has returned more than 30% compound annual growth since its inception in February 2015. Phil and his team are very focused on absolute return investing, uh, which we quite like at this stage of the cycle. We talk about Phil's process as well as some of his investee companies such as Appen. I think you'll really enjoy this podcast, please don't also forget to rate and share the podcast. Thank you very much and enjoy the podcast. Phil King, welcome to Inside the Road. Thank you, David. Phil, perhaps you could kick off by giving us a bit of a background of yourself and what your major influences are or have been. I think I've always had a strong interest in finance. I bought my first shares when I was 13 with some money saved from a part-time job cleaning swimming pools. And some of the friends I went to school with gave me money then, and some of them are still investors with me today. Barker College. Indeed, indeed. I went to Barker up at Hornsby and had a, a great experience there. Okay, and then from, from there, Bachelor of Commerce, University of New South Wales, KPMG consultant, what's a consultant versus an accountant, Macquarie Equities, five years, um, Deputron hedge fund? Correct, DPFM as we called it in okay. London. Okay. Um, Talk us through the career progression and what shaped you from each one of those, those points, if you could, please. Yeah, firstly, I did a cadetship with KPMG, and to me, as a young, ambitious 18-year-old, that was the quickest way to get in the workforce and start earning some money. So I was doing university at night and working during the day. I did an honours degree in accounting and finance at New South Wales, and I found that very useful, having both those accounting and finance angles. And then I spent seven or eight years working with KPMG. I was actually in the small business division, which was a a great um, insight into a company because we were doing everything for them. We were doing the accounting, we were doing the auditing, we were doing the tax, as well as, in some cases, advising them as well. And so that was a great experience. And so some of the companies I actually worked for back at KPMG were, were companies that were listed on the ASX. So I had great insight into some of the uh, choices and conflicts that are necessary when you're putting together financial statements. Then I spent five years on the sell side, working as a research analyst at Macquarie Bank, and I started off in the paper and packaging in the media sectors, and then I moved across to other sectors, such as telecommunications, and I was involved in the original IPO of Telstra. And then I moved to London, and I spent six or seven years working at DPFM, which was on the buy side. And I guess if I had to summarise all my experience, I think it's very useful working at KPMG and putting financial statements together. Five years working on the sell side or as a stockbroker was very insightful. And I think working on the sell side, you learn how to make money, as I call it. And then working on the buy side, you learn about risk management and how not to lose money. 
I think of those two lessons, I think those lessons you learn on the buy side about risk management and how not to lose money are probably the most valuable. And then you started Regal. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so did quite well in London with DPFM and then moved back here around 04, 05 and started working with my brother. And um, yeah, we set up Regal. We never had, never had a lot of confidence about um, raising a lot of money externally. And so um, we actually used a bit of leverage um, in our first fund, the Atlantic Fund. Um, we always thought that if we can't get any money from any outside investors, you know, UBS were happy to lend us money at very low interest rates, so we might as well use their money. And um, that's how our first fund, the Atlantic Fund, came to be. Okay, and today, am I right in thinking that Regal manages eight strategies? We manage a number of different strategies. We manage close to $2 billion across a number of different strategies. Mm -hmm. All those strategies are long, short equities, and that's, we can go long shares, which obviously anyone can, but there's only a small minority of investors that can actually go short, which is actually selling shares before you buy them. Mm -hmm. um, so all our strategies are long, short, but they vary in what we call risk management, with the biggest difference in risk management being market exposure. So one of our main strategies is market neutral. So at all times, uh, we remain effectively dollar short for every dollar that we're long. And that's a great investment for someone who's got a lot of equity exposure in their portfolio and is seeking to diversify. Then we have some another strategy, which is our original Atlantic Fund, that uses internal leverage, uses shorts, takes exposure to various sectors, and that aims to maximise returns with a moderate level of risk. And so that's for what I call the true believers, the annualised returns over 14 years or so for the Atlantic Fund are around 35%. So it's up about 85 times in that period. So that's a compound annual growth number? A compound annual growth. Yep. Wow. And so my mum, who put some money in when we started... She's happy with you. She's up 85 times and she loves her overseas travel these days. <laughs> um, and so that fund is, is a great investment for someone who's happy to take a longer-term perspective on things. And then we have a couple of other strategies that are focused at the smaller cap end of the market. Our smaller company strategy, which is long-short focused on companies probably less than $2 billion. And then we have a, a new strategy we started a couple of years ago where we focused on what we call emerging companies. So Australia, for example, has never had the large technology companies like the Googles and Facebooks that the US has had, but we do have a lot of exciting little companies. And so we've got a, a team and a fund that's focused at the, the what we call the emerging companies end of the market. And that's companies that are listed that are less than $200 million or companies that are unlisted and seeking to grow and need to raise capital. And that's that's quite an exciting area at the moment as well. You've seen people like Appen and Atlassian come through that sort of path. Exactly. Yeah, so Appen's a classic example for us because we invested at the time of the IPO five years ago. Uh, it was 50 or 60 cents at that time. And now it's trading, I think, from memory around $14 or so. So it's been a cracking investment for us. And you want to give a heads up for our listeners just to the business model of Appen and what, what, what area it's in? Yeah, Appen's involved in two very exciting areas. It's involved in voice recognition, um, which obviously is a big area as, as we start to talk to our 
iPhones, but also talk to our cars and our fridges and our ovens. And that's a, a huge growth area for all the technology companies in the world. And Appen's also involved in machine learning, which, you know, as, as artificial intelligence grows, machine learning becomes more and more important. And so these are two huge growth areas that the largest technology companies in the world are throwing cash at. And Appen is in the right spot to take advantage of this. Phil, how do you compare and contrast a strategy where Regal has multiple different strategies or buckets versus other managers where they will have, you know, take a Hamish Douglas, for instance, where it's, you know, basically a large cap or international manager of funds. How do you compare and contrast on what's better for the investor in terms of pound for pound what they're getting of value? Look, I, you know, that's your job, David, a little bit to give your investors advice. And I sure. certainly encourage all investors to um, have a diversified portfolio and have a range of different investments. I think it's important and, and quite good at the moment to have some global investments. And I think that's where Magellan and other firms like that uh, mm -hmm. are, are focused and that they're scouring the world for the best ideas they can find. Whereas we're probably, you know, scouring Australia and Asia and other places for, um, you know, some, some of the smaller companies. And so, um, you know, I think we try and focus on Asia because I think it's hard to be good at everything in the world. Mm -hmm. And so we have a, a team based in Singapore that are focused on Asia, as well as the 30 or so people based in Sydney, um, focused on Australia. And so, yeah, we're very much focused on Australia and Asia, whereas I think Magellan's more global in their thinking. And by being global, obviously, that just limits them in, in the sort of companies they can look at. They can't obviously go too small, especially with the amount of money that they manage. Absolutely. Um, talk to us a little bit, if you could, about the concept of long short. Um, many of our clients would be much more comfortable on a FA with long only, but profiting uh, when companies come off. Can you talk a little bit about you know, being able to do that and what that means for investors and over the long term? Yeah, well, I find it funny when a lot of long only investors, as I call them, you know, call themselves stock pickers because you know, a true stock picker for me is someone that can go short as well as long. Um, for a long only fund, you know, probably 80% of their risk or 80% of their returns come from the stock market going up. Whereas for, you know, our market neutral fund, for example, that's what we call a, a skill-based return or our returns are generated from us picking the, the right stocks. So when we go short, we borrow some shares from an existing shareholder and we pay them a small rate of interest for the, the right to borrow their shares. And that allows us to sell them in the stock market. And then at some future date in time, when hopefully the share price is lower, we can buy those shares back and repay the loan, i.e. hand those shares back to the shareholder. So that's what we do. And the difference is your profit. The difference is our profit or our loss, as it were. Yep. Uh, hopefully our profit. And then that obviously just means that on our long portfolio, we, we can identify shares that hopefully go up in value. On our short portfolio, we can hopefully identify shares that go down in value. And um, yeah, we don't have to worry too much about the stock market, what it does. We don't have to get you know, whipsawed by Wall Street. We can just try and you know, identify stocks on the long side that will outperform our short portfolio. And how do you work or what is the process when you have taken a short position but the market 
just keeps on taking it up and you start to get squeezed on that. How do you manage that or what is the process that you use to, to get through that? Yeah, we follow a very similar process on the short side to the long side and that is that we're very evaluation and fundamental, fundamentally driven in our thinking and we are very happy to take a, a longer term perspective on things. So unlike some funds, we don't get squeezed out, as we call it, of our shorts as much as some other long short managers. But yeah, no, it is a problem. Obviously, when you short something and it goes up, the position gets bigger. Whereas if you make a mistake on the long side, the position gets smaller and you can basically ignore it. Whereas if you get a short wrong, you can't ignore it because it gets bigger and bigger. And so, look, sometimes we have to buy things when they go up just to risk manage our positions and make sure they don't get too big. Um, but often, you know, we're happy to handle a bit of volatility on the short side, as we call it. Um, and so it's all about risk management, i.e. sizing the positions at, at a level that we can handle things going against us and also identifying catalysts, something that's going to change in the future so we're not just holding our shorts forever. And, and how often would you allow something like that typically to play out for if the market was moving against you and or irrationally in your point, from your point of view? Look, it all comes back to the size of the position. You know, if it's a very small position, we're probably happy to handle more volatility. Um, whereas if it's a, a large short position for us, we're probably more inclined to risk manage the position and make sure it doesn't grow too big. And uh, you've got to always weigh up other factors like um, uh, high conviction and catalysts, as well as sometimes, you know, growth stocks might be going up a lot at the moment and we might have some great long positions that are going up more than our shorts. And so, you know, those growth companies that we might be short are probably acting as good hedges for our longs in case, you know, the market suddenly falls out of favour with growth stocks. Phil, the smaller companies fund is one that I know a lot of my clients have got exposure to. Can you talk a little bit in detail about that fund specifically, which you touched on before, um, both its objectives and also your current position and view in that fund? Yeah, so we've got some great relationships with brokers and bankers in Australia. We see a lot of corporates. And as our other funds got larger, um, it was harder and harder to take meaningful positions in smaller companies. And so we launched the small company strategy a few years ago and it's gone extremely well since then. And so we've deliberately uh, limited the capacity so it doesn't get too big. Um, but we focus on companies in the ASX 300 or companies that we think will get in the ASX 300 one day um, but aren't in the 100. So it's generally companies between about $200 million market cap and $2 billion. We find that at the moment in Australia, that's where some of the most exciting growth companies are. The large companies in Australia don't have much growth, whether it's the supermarkets or the banks um, or, or um, Telstra. They're all uh, you know, very much um, struggling to, to grow revenue. They've got very poor histories of making acquisi acquisitions um, and they're very much you know, struggling to get more costs out. So, there's very little growth at the large cap end of the Australian market, but at the smaller cap end, where our small companies fund focuses, there's a lot of exciting growth opportunities. And you know, you mentioned Appen before, that's just one example. Are you able to talk about any other similar uh, stock stories or 
positions that you like in that area that would give some colour to our listeners? Yeah, so there's lots of stories that we like at that end. Um, you know, one of the areas that we like at the moment is mining service stocks. Um, and so, you know, we like Emito, which is seeing an increase in demand um, for its, um, its mining fleet. And so there's been a big move in certain commodity prices like coal prices, and that's attracting um, some old mines to reopen as well as fresh money to come into the sector. And obviously that's very positive for mining service stocks like Emico. Um, equally, you know, we're excited about, um, you know, some of the technology companies. Todd, who's one of our lead portfolio managers in the fund, has uh, been a big fan of Altium for a long time. And so he continues to hold a position in Altium that's a leading technology company in the world. And so this is a company, I believe, that's got technology for designing circuit boards and the fact that we're looking to put circuit boards and computer design circuit boards into more and more devices. You said talking to our ovens and everything else, you're going to have the internet of all things. These guys have got software that designs those circuit boards, right? Exactly. And, you know, Australia doesn't have the Facebooks or the... Google's, but we've certainly got a lot of very exciting smaller companies, and yes. Altium and Appium are two examples of that. Okay. And how do you view the current market and that opportunity? I think there was a, an article in the AFR recently that was sort of quoting yourself, but also along the lines of there's a lot of people, and I think there might have been an analyst at Goldman Sachs who raised concern over valuations being topish and that we might be towards the top of the valuation, particularly for growth companies. Um, how do you view that? Yeah, look, there's no doubt that valuations have moved up a lot in the last few years, but on the other hand, interest rates are at record lows or close to record lows. I know a lot of people are worried about interest rates going up and, you know, that's always a risk. But I don't think the stock market fully factored in the decrease in interest rates over the last 10 or 20 years. And so I think the point in the article was that growth companies could go up a lot more. You know, I drew a comparison with where growth companies are getting priced at the moment, which is kind of PEs of maybe the high 20s, um, which was very similar to what we saw at the height of the tech bubble in 2000. Um, and I guess the main difference there is that government bond rates in Australia are now 2.5%, whereas they were 7% back in 2000. So interest rates are a lot lower than they were back then. Um, and the other thing is that I think a lot of these technology companies at the moment have got real earnings, whereas some of the companies back at the height of the tech bubble didn't have real earnings. So I said, look, you know, we've got an open mind. Growth companies could go a lot higher, um, but we recognise that they have re-rated a lot, and we're always wary when people say things are different this time. So, you know, I, I guess the point of the article and the speech that was based upon was that um, you know, we're keeping an open mind about whether growth stocks could go higher, but when the, the bear market, sorry, the bull market's over and the bull market becomes a bear market, we're one of the few managers that can benefit because we can go short as well as long. And I think, um, you know, that's something that a lot of people don't appreciate is what a true bear market is. And, you know, I talked about the three large bear markets I've seen in my shorting career over the last 20 years, and that's the the tech bubble of 2000, when we started valuing companies on page views and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's the credit bubble of 2008, when some of the bankers started leveraging things at up to 10 times EBITDA. And then we saw the mining bubble of 
2012 or so after China really loosened the liquidity reins and we, instead of people talking about stronger for longer, they talked about a mining cycle that was stronger forever. And the number of listed iron ore companies in Australia went from, I think, three to 90. And so that was a very much a sign that we were at the top. And the thing I want to kind of comment about those three bubbles was that, you know, we don't have a great insight into when the bubble peaks. We don't claim to have a crystal ball as to, you know, when, when things are about to, to pop. But when the bubble does burst, we have a great opportunity to make great returns in a bear market. A lot of journalists these days refer to any sort of 10 or 20% correction as a bear market. And that irks me a little bit because I think a true bear market is something you really have to appreciate. You have to live through to appreciate. And a true bear market is when excessive optimism becomes excessive pessimism. It's when every new low is lower than the previous low. It's when every new high is below the previous high. And we go from a period where it's very easy to raise capital to it's very hard to raise capital. And a lot of companies go bankrupt, sadly. Um, and you know the chart I had in that speech showed that bear markets, or well, three bear markets I was talking about, on average lasted three years. And they fell you know, 80 or 90%. And so, you know, that is something um, which is a good environment for a long short manager to make money in. There's lots of opportunities on the short side in those bear markets. Um, and it's going to be a tough period for many of our long only friends to actually generate returns. And so then coming back to your earlier point, you know, these people that call themselves stock pickers who can't go short, they really struggle in bear markets. Phil, Many of our clients, as I was discussing off-air, um, have built significant wealth through private businesses, that, that may be through X and Y, um, and then transition to a more passive wealth um, creation strategy or management strategy. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see, or what, what advice would you have for those people? Yeah. Well, I guess my first... Uh kind of comment would be, you know, I'm not very good at DIY. And so if I need to do something around the house, I get a professional plumber or I get a professional electrician and I don't try and do it myself. And equally, I'd suggest to them that, you know, we talk to every stockbroker in Australia. We spend a lot of time meeting experts. We're very focused on what we do and that's investment management. And if people want to try and do it themselves, good luck. But I would, you know, strongly suggest people that they get help and use professionals in their investing. Um, Got a free ad without asking for it. Yeah, yeah. And I'll give you another free ad. There's a couple of simple rules for uh, investment portfolios and that's match liabilities with the assets and also diversification. And so very much, you know, would encourage investors to talk to their advisors and get a diversified portfolio. Um, and yeah, look, that's where we can help is that, you know, our market neutral strategy is an excellent diversifier for people that have got a lot of equity exposure. And then there's some of our other funds like the Atlantic Fund or the Small Companies Fund that can actually provide a lot of extra return as well. So, you know, I think our funds make, have excellent roles to play in balanced diversified portfolios. Phil, that seems like a great place to end it. Thank you very much for your time and thanks for joining us inside the road. Thank you, David.
Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.